The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to look tonight at the uh, book of Revelation. Revelation is often looked at with, uh, I guess, hesitation because there's so many uh, strange ideas about the book. But if you keep in mind that it's written to first century church members who were no more uh, intelligent or unique than we are, then surely uh, there are things that are applicable to the daily lives of church members in any age. So let's just begin in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Now, I, know, I want you to notice uh, in these uh, two verses, in verse 1, he says he's uh, going to speak, speak or write of some things which must shortly come to pass. And then at the end of verse 3, we didn't read down to the end of verse 3, but notice at the end of verse 3, he says, for the time is at hand. So there's two expressions in verse 1 and then in verse 3 that would at first lead you to believe that the events in this book would have already transpired because this was written uh, in the first century. But as you study the book of Revelation, especially near the end, when it speaks of the second coming of Christ, then I believe it is obviously reasonable to conclude that the events in this book have not all been fulfilled. Now let's see if we can find some scriptural support uh, for that notion that even though there are these uh, Two terms used which would seem to indicate that, yet if we compare them to other scripture, which is the best way to interpret the Bible, then we'll see that uh, that's not necessarily the case. Now, first of all, notice in verse 1, it says that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly Come to pass. Now that word shortly uh, can indicate a short passage of time. In other words, if we say I'm going to do something shortly, we mean I'm going to do that in the very near future instead of that which may be an event that takes place a year from now. Notice in Luke chapter 18. That, uh, that we can see that same uh, idea expressed. Now there, uh, he uses the word shortly. Here in Luke, you'll find the word 
quickly, but it's made obvious from the context that it's not speaking of something that's going to happen right now. Now, here in Luke chapter 18, this is the story of the widow before the unjust judge. And it will not read uh, that in particular because that's not uh, what we want to look at. But you remember, I'm sure, that account of the widow that came before the unjust judge. And it was made clear that he didn't fear God or regard men. But because she wouldn't leave him alone, he eventually granted her request. Now, he didn't grant her request immediately. That is, he didn't grant her request the first time she came before him. But because she daily, regularly came before him, bothering him, he gave her what she was seeking. Now look at Luke chapter 18 and and how Jesus then speaks of this. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now, I said a while ago that it uses the word quickly, but it uses the word speedily. But that's the definition of the word speedily is quickly. But notice how he addresses this. It says in verse 7, Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Now, this says that though God's children cry unto him day and night, he doesn't immediately, that is in the immediate future, grant their request. But it says he may indeed bear long with them. Now, that's been my normal experience when I'm going through difficulty, and it probably has been yours too. That when we're going through a trial, God usually doesn't immediately, that is in the immediate future, deliver us or give us the answer. As a minister, I know that when uh, there's been things uh, regarding uh, my being a pastor, uh, when there's been things that that were of concern to me that I usually wasn't... uh, Uh, delivered, or I usually didn't receive the answer to that uh, struggle in the immediate future, but it was over a period of time uh, in which I labored with that situation. So you say, well, what in the world does the word speedily mean? Well, notice this in verse 8. He says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. In other words, God may bear long with us, but when the deliverance comes, it may indeed come quickly. In other words, have you not had situations in your life? I can think about when I moved here. I had been uh, praying and struggling for uh, probably a year, and the ideas that I had in mind 
uh, were that the Lord would give me a, a secular job there in Florida and I would continue working there and I just kept praying, Lord, why isn't anything happening? Why am I not getting a job? But when the door opened here, it was speedily, it was quickly. In other words, when the Lord gives you the answer, there it is. He just opens the door to you. That's the idea here. That the Lord may bear long with His children, but when He delivers them, it may indeed be speedily or quickly. Now, isn't that how the Bible describes the second coming? You know, when we think of the uh, Lord returning to, to claim His people, especially in the perspective of those that lived in the first century, we know the event didn't take place in the immediate future because it still hasn't taken place. But yet often it, the, the New Testament writers uh, wrote in such a way that you might think that's the case. As a matter of fact, the church at Thessalonica so overreacted to Paul speaking about the Lord's coming that they quit their jobs. See, they thought, well, the Lord's coming in the immediate future. But that wasn't the idea. But that shows that we're prone to think that way. Look how it's described in Second uh, Peter. You'll hear again, see the idea of speedily or uh, quickly. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the... Let's go back to verse uh, 9. This will really set the context. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness. Now what that's saying is sometimes we equate a long passage of time with the idea that the Lord's not going to do what He said He was going to do. Now we're often that way with other people and rightfully so because usually if someone tells you they're going to do something and a lot of time goes by, you can usually conclude that they forgot about it, that they're not going to do it at all. But we know the Lord's not that way. But notice here it says, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, and He's speaking of the promise of His second coming, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Notice here we're going to find the same uh, balance that we read there about the judge. He, bear, he, he, he bears long with his children, but then he delivers them speedily. Notice here with regard to the second coming. It says he's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's speaking of all of his children being born again. The Lord's not going to come until he's through with his work of salvation, which includes the new birth. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now notice the idea here again. He's long-suffering, but when the Lord comes, it's going to be like a sudden, unexpected intrusion. The idea of a thief here is not someone that's sneaking around quietly trying to get into your house unnoticed. 
The idea here is someone that breaks in suddenly and unexpectedly and catching you off guard. So notice what we've looked at so far in Luke 18 and here in 2 Peter 3, that the idea of the Lord coming quickly or the Lord coming speedily doesn't necessarily mean that He's coming in the immediate future. It just means that He could come at any time, number one, and it's going to be a sudden intrusion. I dare say when when the Lord comes back, He's going to catch us off guard. You say, brother, buddy, you're saying that we'll be doing things we're ashamed of. No, I'm not saying that. But I doubt if we're going to really be expecting it to happen the moment he returns. We're going to be caught off guard in the sense that it's going to, uh, it's really going to get our attention. Because he's going to come like a thief in the night. But that'll be a blessing to his children. But there are some that will be in fear. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 1 with those thoughts in mind. In verse 1, he said, These things must shortly come to pass. We've tried to show you from Luke and 2 Peter that the Lord's return is imminent while it may not be immediate. You see the difference? These things will shortly come to pass. Now what about that other expression at the end of verse 3? He says the time is at hand. Now that would seem to even make the case stronger that here's something that is about to transpire right around the corner. But when you can find other scripture that use the same phrase in a context that proves that it's not speaking of the immediate future, then that gives you, shall I say, the liberty to interpret this text in that light. Notice, for example, in uh, James chapter 5, let's start. In verse 7, be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, there's no need for patience if it's going to happen tomorrow, right? If it's immediate, you won't have time to have patience. He says, be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, speaking of the gardener, the farmer, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Now notice all of this verse, including the illustration about the farmer, is giving the idea that you patiently wait for that which you anticipate. And then immediately in verse 8, he says, Be ye also patient, in the same way the gardener is patient. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now, see, that's not saying that the Lord's coming back tomorrow. As a matter of fact, it's been almost 2,000 years since 
James penned those words, and the Lord hasn't returned that, but He's showing us this is the perspective we're to have. You probably heard me say before that whether you were in the first century or the 21st century, the outlook of the church is exactly the same. You see, as many people read Revelation and they try to figure out where we're at on a timeline, that's not the message of the book. It's not to figure out where we are on the timeline. The general theme of the book is that we're in trouble, we're in conflict, we're in battle, but there's a real invisible world called heaven where Jesus reigns and rules. And though we even are persecuted and if even martyred here, which was what some of those churches in Revelation were being threatened with, that regardless of what I'm going through here, there's a real invisible world called heaven where Jesus rules and He will return and He will in every sense then win the battle. You see, He won the battle at Calvary, but He has not yet claimed and taken home what He redeemed at Calvary. That's the idea of Revelation. And you have all of these detailed pictures that relate to that concept. So the reason I'm telling you all these things or making this great emphasis is so you won't approach the book of Revelation and say, well, where are we on the timeline? Surely if John began by saying, that these are things that must shortly come to pass. And if he said the time is at hand, then surely these are things that would soon be fulfilled in the perspective of those in the first century. And so for us in the 21st century, a lot of this, if not all of it, may have already happened. See, I've used Luke 18 and... uh, also 2 Peter 3, to try to suggest with other comparable scriptures that this is not speaking of something in the immediate future. See, that's important for you to have that understanding. So that when you're reading Revelation, you can say, hey, The same way that this applied to those seven churches, it applies to Zion Church in the same way. We may not be going through the same circumstances, and indeed we're not. Many of them were being persecuted. We've been blessed here. But as far as future perspective is concerned, it's exactly the same. Now let's just look for just a few minutes at what this first sentence in Revelation is telling us. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now, revelation means to disclose something. 
I like the idea that I heard a preacher or the terminology that I heard a preacher use. When it says revelation, it's like the Lord saying, okay, I'm going to pull back the curtain and let you see things that people don't ordinarily see. John received those visions, didn't he? He had been banished to the Isle of Patmos because of his faithfulness in preaching the gospel. That was his, that was his punishment. He was banished to the Isle of Patmos. But it was there on that isle that God gave him great revelation. You know, isn't it neat how that the enemies can't take away your spiritual blessing? They sent him off to Patmos and said, we'll take care of him. And it was there that God opened up things to him. And by them banishing him to that island, we still read the things he saw today. And you know, the Apostle Paul, you remember, one time was caught up to the third heaven and saw things that are not lawful to be uttered. Now, the third heaven refers to eternal heaven. You know, the Bible speaks of the first heaven, the second heaven, and maybe I can go into that sometime. But for now, let me just state that he's speaking there of eternal heaven. When Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven, and if you read about what he, what, how he describes it, then obviously we know that's the case. So the revelation means... The Lord is going to show something or reveal something that has never been seen before. And he refers to it as the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means two things. First of all, Jesus is the one doing the revealing. I don't know what it says in the caption of your Bible where it says revelation But mine says the revelation of St. John the Divine. No, the text says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now there's no error with the King James, but sometimes men may add things such as that in the heading that aren't really accurate. But the text, the inspired text says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the one doing the revealing and He is the subject matter being revealed. That's what revelation is all about, is a disclosing of things pertaining to our salvation in Christ that gets Him glory. He's the centerpiece of revelation. If you hear any preacher preaching from Revelation and the centerpiece or the central thought is something other than the glory of Christ, they're probably not interpreting it correctly. Because remember, it's, it's, a, it's a book about God's people in battle, but one day they'll be delivered from the battle and be in a glory world that's full of wonder some of which we see described here. But notice how he states this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now, 
we need to make a comment about that because you may read that and say, well, does that mean Jesus is inferior to God? Does that mean that God showed Jesus something that he didn't already know? The Bible makes it clear that there is one God who are equal in power. They're equal in the sense that they're omniscient, all-knowing. They're omnipotent, all-power. They're omnipresent, everywhere present. 1 John 5, 7, which by the way is removed from all other modern English translations beside the King James, says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. I don't want to get off on this, but the way the King the way that the the King James text is usually altered is by chipping away from verses that establish that Jesus Christ is God. 1 John 5, 7 is one of them that says that pretty clear. And so you, you check me out on that. You pick up, you know, any of the, the Revised Standard, the New American Standard, any of these new versions and see if you can find what I just said. Now, it's rearranged in a different way. I was talking to one person and they, they didn't realize it wasn't there until I quoted what the King James says. You know, that's an important principle, isn't it? Whenever you're, whenever you're studying, you've got to have something that's the authority. You know, sometimes I'll read not so much modern translations, but I might, I might read a paraphrased version of the Bible, but I only give it, I only bring it to the level of a commentary. You hear me? A commentary. There are many commentaries we can use, but this is the standard. This is the unadulterated. This is the inerrant. This is the inspired. This is the preserved. You can't say that of any other modern versions, and certainly you can't say that of any paraphrase, and you can't say that of any well-known commentator, though we may appreciate their work. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to unto him. What does he mean by that? Well, think of it this way. Jesus did not, when, when Jesus came into this world, he did not lay aside his deity. He laid aside his glory. He didn't lay aside or he was not diminished in being God. He was as much God in this world as he was in heaven. What he laid aside was his glory. Look how this is described in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And this idea of Jesus lowering himself is used to teach us the attitude we ought to have. Notice this in Philippians 2.5. Let this mind, that is this attitude, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form There's the key word. Took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He wasn't made a a carnal, sin-cursed man. He was made in the likeness of men. If you'll look up that word likeness, you'll see that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't come in sinful flesh, but he looked like any man that you would see walking around in that day. He came in the resemblance, the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, what does he mean when he said he thought it not robbery to be equal with God? You see, there are challenges to interpreting the King James because words were used differently. Sentences were constructed differently. But notice what he says here. He says, Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Here's what it's saying. Jesus did not look at it as a big sacrifice to leave heaven and lower himself. He thought it not robbery. You know, sometimes we say, well, you know, I'm too good for that. I'm not going to lower myself. Have you ever heard someone say that? Christians don't need to say that. That's what a Christian is, is someone that lowers themselves. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What's he saying here? He's saying even though he was equal with God, he did not look at it as as diminishing himself in that he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. You ever heard someone say, well, I have a reputation to look out for. Well, uh, hello, didn't Jesus have a reputation in heaven? He wasn't too concerned about his reputation. And he's someone that could have men. So when it says that God gave to Jesus this revelation, the idea there is not that Jesus is less God, but it's speaking of Jesus' position, how uh, how He submitted Himself to God the Father. And that's, that's how the Scripture presents Him until the Lord comes back and claims those He purchased. See, Jesus is not through saving His people. Let me qualify that. He's already paid the price. He regenerates them and will continue to do so. But salvation's not finished until we get to heaven. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 how that it speaks of Jesus being again exalted with the Father after the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, this is speaking of the physical death and the physical resurrection. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ. At his coming, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have, listen, when he, Jesus, shall have put down all rule 
and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. You see, in, 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 the, in the complete sense of salvation, everything hasn't been finished. He must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now listen to these two verses. For he, now this is speaking of God, he hath put all things under his, under Jesus' feet. But when he saith, when God saith all things are put under him, it is manifest, that is it's clear, that he, that is God, is accepted, which did put all things under him. Now notice this. I want you to understand this verse. God put all things under Jesus' feet. But Paul is saying clearly, God is the exception to this. He says, it is manifest that God is accepted, but what did God do? God's the one which did put all things under Him. So see this, all things are under Jesus with the exception of the Father. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. So notice in heaven, Jesus is with the Father in his glorified state. All things have now been subdued. All things are finished. And Jesus himself, notice that word, is now subject unto him that put all things under him. So Jesus is God. There's just a distinction, a recognition between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Now let's... Try to finish this one sentence here in Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. God, or Jesus rather, is pulling back the curtain. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. Now why did God give the revelation to Jesus? To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. We've already established what he means by shortly come to pass. But who is this revelation intended for? His theologians who know more than the average church members? That's not what it says. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. You know, sometimes preachers will ask me, well, Brother Buddy, are you premillennial Ah, millennial, you know, they ask you how you interpret revelation. I don't even like to use those terms because the purpose of revelation is to show to servants, not professors, but to show unto servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now, that's not even the end of the first sentence, but I'm going to stop there after I show you the the chain here. 
This is the revealing of Jesus Christ. God gave this revealing unto Christ. But notice it says, He, that is Jesus, sent and signified it. The word signified comes from what? The word signs. There's a lot of signs in Revelation, a lot of wonders. Jesus sent and signified this revelation. How? What was the vehicle by which Jesus sent this revelation to John while on the island of Patmos? He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant. There it is again. Unto his servant, John. Here's why we need not be intimidated by the book of Revelation. Jesus sent an angel to give this revelation to a servant. And the the servant, John, is to take that that revelation and give it to other servants. That's you and I. You see, these people in those seven churches, they didn't have access to a library. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have Matthew Henry's commentary. They didn't have all of those resources. And I'm not being critical of resources. I I use a lot of resources. I'm glad I have them. But this can benefit us now. And if, when, if you study or if the Lord leads us someday to preach on some of those weird visions, I think one way that you can simplify them is to not be saying, well, what do the eyes represent? What do the horns represent? What does this represent? No, it's just a picture. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Those visions are pictures, listen, that represents ideas. You don't pick the picture apart and figure out what each little detail means. It just gives you an idea. So I don't know how the Lord will lead us, but I hope that I've at least, if nothing else, helped you not to be afraid of reading The book of Revelation, as a matter of fact, a few verses down, it says this is the only book in the Bible where it says that the people who read it are blessed. Now, you're going to be blessed reading any book in the Bible, but this is the only one that I know of, and if you can show me I'm wrong by uh, looking at the other 65 books, I'm all for it, but this is the only one I've found where it says you're blessed if you read it. Do you think that might be because the Lord knew we might be afraid to read it or intimidated or say, you know, I just can't understand Revelation. I think the Lord just anticipated how we would respond. And he would he said, don't be discouraged. I'll bless you if you'll read it. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. It's